The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Here to set you free on this Tuesday. Hello. Welcome and welcome back. I'm Leslie Marshall. And thank you for listening to us on radio, on stream, on podcast, on Twitter's Periscope, watching us there, Facebook Live, YouTube Live, and LinkedIn Live. We are live and have not one but two great guests in this hour joining us. First up is Michael Dowling. Mr. Dowling is one of healthcare's most influential voices, taking a stand on societal issues such as gun violence and immigration that many health system CEOs shy away from. Now, as president and CEO of Northwell Health, he leads a clinical, academic, and research enterprise with a workforce of more than 75,000 annual revenue of 14 billion with a B dollars. Now, this is the largest, Northwell is the largest healthcare provider and private employer in the state of New York, caring for more than 2 million people annually through a vast network of more than 830 outpatient facilities, including 220 primary care practices, 52 urgent care centers, home care, rehabilitation, and end-of-life programs. Also, 23 hospitals. Check out their website. Northwell Health is northwell.edu. On Twitter, follow them there. Their handle is at Northwell Health. And Michael, uh, Mr. Dowling's Twitter handle is at Michael J. Dowling. Mr. Dowling, you're a busy man. Thank you for taking the time to be with us. I know how much you have on your plate. Uh, my husband's an orthopedic surgeon, and we own, uh, uh, we're a part of a 24 group um, uh, surgical practice. I can't imagine uh, the, uh, the the facilities that you have to uh, oversee uh, in in your position as president and CEO of Northwell Health. So thank you, sir, for taking the time and for all you do. First well, of all, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. It's an exciting uh, time, and it's exciting to be in healthcare because uh, you, each and every day you come to work and you do your best to help people get better and improve and improve their health. So. It's a major responsibility and an obligation, and I'm proud to be part of it. So thank you for having me on. There are people out there in healthcare, whether there's somebody from the CDC, I think even Dr. Fauci had weighed in on gun violence and how gun violence is um, a health epidemic. It's a crisis or it's got reached crisis level in our nation. Uh, 18 health system CEOs, 1,300 and more caregivers have implored Congress to support the president's gun violence plan. Are you one of these and why? Because a lot of people think this is political, but for healthcare professionals, it's not political. It, it, it's really a healthcare issue. No, this is not political at all. I mean, uh, we have been here at Northwell taking a position on this for quite a number of years. Uh, we I put a major ad out in newspapers uh, you know, a year ago on this. And um, so, you know, everybody thinks of gun violence as something that happens just out there. You know, we, re we see it, we read about it. But when you're in the healthcare business, we see the effects of it each and every day. You see the people in the trauma rooms suffering from uh, trauma as a result of gun violence. 
you see that the the the, the social aspects of of uh, domestic violence you see the family uh, situations that are absolutely unbelievable their whole lives shattered uh, we when you have your surgeons in the operating room in our pediatric hospitals taking bullets out of children out of young kids two years old three years old and then you, you think of the behavioral aspects the mental issues growing up in a community that uh, has uh, an epidemic of gun violence and what that does to the family so i've been told many times when I was in, started to get engaged in this, people said to me, well, why don't you stay in your lane? Your lane is healthcare. My answer is this is healthcare. Uh, we see the results, we see what's happening. We see the damage it does to individuals and to families. So it is our lane and it has nothing to do with politics. It's about improving people's health and it's getting worse, not better. I mean, there are more or more, you know, uh, deaths from gun violence last year, I think, than in previous years. Uh, but it's just not only the deaths, it's all of the social impact that this affects and the, the whole family gestalt that is negatively affected by the epidemic of gun violence. We've got to do something about it. And we're right there with the families and with the kids and with the parents each and every day. So therefore we have a responsibility and we have a role. And we need resources to try to help us do more to affect what's going on. And that's why we're supporting that legislation uh, that was proposed by the president. And it didn't matter whether it was a Republican president or Democratic president, I could care less. I am about making sure that we can help families who are terribly affected uh, by the, uh, the epidemic of gun violence. And, and um, uh, that's basically, I believe, something that we have to take very seriously. And I've reached out to other health systems across the country to ask them to get involved here. And we did end up creating a national learning collaborative. And we have about uh, you know, 20 large systems involved right now because hospitals in various parts of the country are, are doing different things. And we should learn from each other, figure out how to do research together, share information, come up with the best interventions that we can come up with so that we can enhance the work that we do. But we do need the resources. Uh, we need more uh, financial resources to do it. We should be working with local, and we are working with local police departments, working with local social agencies, mental health agencies, etc. There's no one magic bullet to this, but it is something we have to take a major responsibility for in healthcare. And if you are in healthcare, and I will say this, if you're in healthcare and you don't think this is a health issue, then I have questions about what you see your role as. I agree with you 100%. And I like how you addressed, you know, people just think like you say, it's out there and people just think it's it's just about gun violence or, or you know, drug lords or bad guys. Uh, but if it affects people, you mentioned domestic violence yeah. um, and, and you mentioned cost. And it's not just cost to a community, it's cost to the healthcare community. I want to tell you a very quick, true story. I think you'll enjoy this. Uh, when I was first married, my husband was in residency, and one of the hospitals he rotated through was Highland Hospital in Oakland, California, which sure. is a, uh, a level one trauma uh, center. And he went in as an orthopedic surgeon in rotation, and there's a guy laying there who had been shot. And my husband said, who shot you? And he said, him, pointing to the kid, guy across the room. So my husband said they operated on both of them. Two weeks later, who do you think is in the ER? Both of them. 
They shot each other again. And my Uh husband, not political at all, as a physician, was so frustrated because it took time and resources away from other people coming in through the ER or people who needed to be in the OR, whether it was an orthopedic injury or, you know, another injury. Um, And, you know, so this is a big problem. You talk about resources and the president's plan is to invest $5 billion in hospital and community-based gun violence interve- intervention programs right. um, so that, that that people understand, um, you know, talk to us a bit more about the cost, literally, the, the, the financial cost uh, to healthcare facilities with the increase in uh, gun violence, because we have deaths and injuries from shooting spiking right uh, across the country. Yeah, it's pretty, you know, it's pretty extraordinary because, you know, when you have somebody come into the, our, our operating rooms, our trauma centers, I mean, these are expensive endeavors. But then, but the cost goes beyond just the, the, the dollars and cents that you have to pay to treat those individuals that are directly affected by the gunshot itself or by the wound itself, but the cost of the behavioral health cost of dealing with the mental anguish that these kids suffer with, of the families, and uh, the, the other social services that are needed by these people, the interventions. Um, this is a major drag on the healthcare system, and it's unnecessary. The, the, the problem is that this is, this is preventable. Uh, we don't have to be in this situation if we take proactive action. And, 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 you know, this is all about promoting gun safety. It's about education. It's about referring people to those services that help them. And in the case you just mentioned, you know, evidence has demonstrated if you talk to people and you have the resources to spend time dealing with somebody who has been injured, you can reduce the possibility that they may get injured again by providing them with, with mentoring and with counseling and what actions to take with regard yeah. to guns at home. How do you have guns, keep guns safely, et cetera. And you know, all, this is not about the second amendment because people come to me and they say, you're against ownership of guns. I'm not dealing with the second amendment here. I'm dealing with the gun safety and all the prevention efforts that are needed because all, you know, in all studies, the bulk of gun owners uh, support promote programs to prevent gun to prevent unnecessary gun violence and uh, promote safety. So, you know, the cost is enormous. I don't think you can put a complete dollar size signal, a dollar number on it, but it is huge. And it diverts our attention from, as you said, from dealing with all of the other things that we've got to deal with. Absolutely. Uh, We're going to take a quick break. Mr. Dowling, we'll be right back with you. Michael Dowling, one of healthcare's most influential voices, taking a stand on social issues. We're talking about gun violence. We have more to say. There are many health system CEOs who may shy away from this, but now we are seeing more and more 18 health system CEOs, 1,300 caregivers implore Congress, please support the Biden gun violence plan. Please help us to have hospitals and community groups gain $5 billion to keep our patients and our communities safe. I'm Leslie Marshall. Quick break. We'll be back right after this. We are back with our guest, Michael Dowling, one of the healthcare's most influential voices, president and CEO of Northwell Health. As I mentioned, the website for Northwell Health is northwell.edu. The Twitter, I'm hearing that, uh, uh, I'm hearing that. The website for Northwell Health. Tech person, turn off that feed again. 
The website for Northwell Health is northwell.edu. On Twitter, their handle is at Northwell Health, and Michael's Twitter is at Michael J. Dowling. Uh, Mr. Dowling, thank you for um, holding and uh, welcome back. In in speaking about gun violence, uh, gun violence in our nation, in the United States of America, as I had mentioned at the beginning, is is at a crisis level. I mean, last year we experienced a record 43,559 firearms-related deaths and more than 39,000 additional injuries. Uh, Our nation now this year is on pace to surpass that milestone, which was grim to begin with. Um, I wanted to talk to you... um, I wanted to talk to you about the Learning Collaborative, because many of the signers of the letter to the congressional leaders, and that was sent right to Speaker Pelosi's desk, um, are already participants in the Learning Collaborative. And that was established by Northwell Center for Gun Violence Prevention in order to share and develop best practices for preventing firearm injury and death. Very admirable. Um, So uh, what does the Center for Gun Violence Prevention concentrate on? And can you tell us about this Learning Collaborative? Yes. Uh, um, back to your comment just mentioned at the beginning. I mean, we do have the, the, the horrific problem that you just mentioned. I would just like to say that we're better than this as a country. We can do better than this. This is not what we should be known for, uh, to be so unique as a, as a so-called civilized society. But on um, the Center for Gun Violence Prevention, it focuses on advocacy. It focuses on education. It focuses on providing services to those people who come through our facilities uh, as a result of the effects of gun violence. And we're involved in research. We do have one of the first in the the country, we have an NIH grant to do a risk assessment and to develop a screening tool in the emergency rooms to ask questions about uh, firearms in the home and about guns. Uh, um, about family history with guns, et cetera, all in an attempt to try to figure out how best over time do we ask these questions? What, what way should we, what kind of intervention should we be making to better affect what we do? And we have a multi-year grant from the NIH to do this. Now, the Leveling Collaborative, I reached out to other hospitals across the country, and we've actually held a number of major forums, national forums on this over the last couple of years, and um, about 20 of the large health systems joined up. And the idea here is get together on a regular basis, communicate on a regular basis, share examples of the programs that each of us are working on that have some positive effects so we can all learn, sharing sharing knowledge, sharing expertise, sharing um, results, and also collectively, uh, constructively advocating for what we think is right. Because if we believe in our community, if we believe in America, uh, we believe, and as leaders in our local communities, and I'm a strong believer in this, that you know, if you're running a very large organization in your local community, like a healthcare organization, you have a responsibility to your organization, but you have an also a responsibility to the community at large. When issues affect the community at large, I believe that we have to use our voice to talk about these kinds of things and to get large health system leaders across the country, as we've done, to talk in unison about this and basically believe that, and this is my belief in the beginning, if you get get people to understand it as a health issue, Mm -hmm. I believe we'll get more traction and more support. No, I Uh, agree with you, as opposed to a political issue. Yeah, Yeah. because people tend to focus on only the Second Amendment, that forget the 
the downstream effects of all of this and what it does for for the community aspect of the uh, of families in the communities, what it does to kids who live in those communities, etc. And so with all of those large systems coming together to share information, we can only all better be better for it. Uh, we'll all improve. And uh, hopefully we will continue to communicate. We'll broaden the list that um, uh, will share information with us. I think the list of large systems will increase over the next couple of months. We're holding another major colloquium on gun violence in December. We'll be holding it here in New York. Uh, we get lots of people last year. We had well over a thousand people attend. It was by Zoom last year. Hopefully this year it'll be a combination. But the more you talk about those things, the more you get people involved, uh, the more you get passionate about what you care about. You care about health, wellness, life. And uh, that's what we should be talking about, about how we come together to do good things in unison. No, that's no, what we're about. That's the best of America. And, no, abso uh, absolutely. And absolutely. I'm an immigrant. I'm a friend, uh, and I'm 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 so fortunate to be in America, and to be. This is a wonderful place, but we have to make it better. And one of the things we can make it we can make it better by, you know, curtailing the scourge of gun violence. Uh, Very well said. I agree with you 100 percent with the learning collaborative uh, and at your center for gun violence prevention, because you spoke about education. Yeah. Why? What have you found to be the reason gun violence continues to escalate? And is there something that we as a society can do to lessen it so we can make America better? Well, I think, um, uh, you yeah, know, I think the ease availability of being able to get guns is one thing. I mean, uh, you know, you have the legal way of getting them, but there are so many other illegal ways of getting these. And you have, uh, you can buy parts of guns and put them together. You can get them through the mail. Uh, it's it, to me, it, that's kind, that's ridiculous, and um, that that those kinds of things are allowed. Um, I think, of course, it escalated uh, during COVID because of the, uh, you know, the other issues associated with isolation, and uh, and I think we've also. Um, taking our eye off the ball with regard to, you know, having cops on the street and strengthening our, our, um, our police forces. I mean, uh, law, law and order is important. Uh, we've got to deal with those ne negative aspects that may be out there, but law and order is important. Uh, uh, putting more people on the street, building trust between the police and the, and the local community is important. We're working an awful lot with the police departments in this region and constant, constant education. Um, I often equate it to, um, you know, when Ralph Nader came out years and years and years ago about, um, you know, safety belts uh, in the cars. Mm -hmm. And uh, everybody said, you're crazy. If we had safety, bag, safety belts and airbags, nobody will buy a car. It'll be too expensive. It will never happen, et cetera, et cetera. But look at it now. You can't buy a car without a safety belt and without an airbag. It takes time. Uh, and I'm Irish and I'm from Ireland, you can probably gather. I mean, anybody who doesn't know that, I worry <laughs> uh, from my accent. But in Ireland, which was everybody smoked in Ireland when I was a kid, everybody. Uh, I never did, but everybody did. You cannot smoke in, uh, in Ireland today in any public place, in the restaurants, it's hotels. And if anybody had told me years ago that this would happen in Ireland, I would have said, you're absolutely crazy. So when people say to me, well, this battle against gun violence, you know, it won't, it won't be successful, I say, you're kidding. Persistence, resilience, tenacity, 
keeping the discussion going, informing people more and more. It will improve. We have to believe it will improve. Absolutely. It can't go the other way. Because Absolutely. It, uh, we should not be known for this as a country. Mr. Dowling, thank you for being with us. And my mother's maiden name is Duffy. I come from John Duffy and Mary Ryan, who come from Donegal, uh, the Dodge oh, Man. Have you ever, <laughs> have you been there? I actually haven't been to Donegal because when I went to Ireland, they told me that I was from Galway mistakenly. Well, congratulations. I'm delighted to be on. I thank you so much. And I thank you for your do what you're doing. Um, and being able to give a voice that this, this issues like this is very, very important. So thank and, you so much. And, and more than likewise, Mr. Dowling. Thank you, Michael Dowling, who is president and CEO of Northwell Health. Like I said, Northwell Health, check out their website, northwell.edu. On Twitter, follow them at Northwell Health. And Michael's Twitter handle is at Michael J. Dowling. Quick break, back with our next guest right after this. I am Leslie Marshall. Welcome or welcome back. Lost my water bottle cap there. Here I am. Uh, And we have him back. And I'm very glad to because you're hearing a lot of things in the uh, news and you hear a lot of things online. And there's a lot of misinformation out there. And that's why I love to have this gentleman on because he has facts and I like facts over fiction. And sadly, we have a lot of fiction out there, which confuses people and, and, and it's hurting people. Some people die as a result of that misinformation. Dr. Bob Bollinger is with us, the Raj and Kamla Gupta Professor of Infectious Diseases at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. He holds joint appointments in international health at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and in community public health at the GH School of Nursing. He is founding director of the Center for Clinical Global Health Education, the CCGHE. The center is doing a lot of co- COVID-19 related work here in the United States and beyond our borders. Their website is main.ccghe.net on Facebook. Their Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash ccghe. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Bollinger. Always good uh, to have you with us. And thank you for taking the time. I'm sure you're you're very, very uh, busy. Um, it would seem that the floodgates have opened for vaccine mandates. You have governments on a, a state level, you have private businesses, even some of the federal government suddenly embracing mandatory coronavirus vaccinations for their employees. Um, although these have been uncommon in the U.S., from where you stand as an infectious disease a physician and somebody who is uh, you know, quite an expert on COVID, um, are these vaccine mandates a, a, a wise thing? Because there is such hesitancy among a cer- you know, t- certain members of the population. It would seem uh, some uh, rural uh, people um, who are very against uh, the government. And then, of course, we have minorities, uh, specifically African-Americans or Latino communities that are hesitant to trust the government in these vaccines as well. Well, I mean, it's a, you know, it's a... Um the, the, the best thing we could hope for, Leslie, is that people would agree to get vaccinated on their own. And um, we had a great uptake in uh, vaccinations earlier on, but it's dropped off, as you know, significantly since then. And unfortunately, now we have this Delta variant just ripping through the unvaccinated population. It's also uh, putting at risk some small subset of the vaccinated people, uh, people that have underlying immunity, for example, who may not have mounted a strong reaction to the vaccine. So it's putting the whole the whole community at risk. And so places that have low vaccination rates and high transmission rates, um, I think uh, you know we're going to have to get back to either 
mandating masks and distancing or mandating vac vaccines or, or both. And vaccination is a whole lot easier in the long run than, than this, uh, you know, recurrent uh, episodes where we put masks on, we take masks off, we distance, we don't distance. Uh, and unfortunately, we didn't get enough uptake of the, of the vaccination to, to stop this variant. You know, and let's talk about that. A couple of things. This is so much misinformation from the cray cray stuff about being injected with microchips by vaccines out there uh, that the president referred to approximately 12 people on Facebook putting out. And it's sad how many people can be reached or believe that uh, who are not trusting of the government um, or who believe, you know, conspiracy theories. Uh, the Delta variant um, correct me if I'm wrong, everything I've read, doctor, is that the Delta variant is worse because it's stickier when it enters the respiratory system within the body. Is that somewhat accurate in a layperson term? Sure, in a layperson's term. So the, the virus has, you know, has a spike that looks like our fist and it, it, it locks into a receptor on our cells and the tighter that, uh, that sticks, the tighter it locks in, the easier it is for that virus to get inside of our cells. The other thing this variant uh, appears to do is it replicates at a much faster and higher level. So people that have the Delta variant have more virus in their nose and their mouth and their sputum uh, than people that had earlier variants. Um, and that's making it even more infectious so that uh, you don't have to be around someone. You know, we used to say you got to be around someone who's infected for five minutes or longer without a mask. It looks like you know, this is so much more trans transmissible that you don't have to be around very long. If you're unvaccinated, um, you could easily get infected. And, and we're seeing this um, happen over and over again. Uh, and that, you know, one indication of that is, you know, early on when we would go into a household and screen everybody in a, in a house where someone had COVID in the early days, you might find 20 to 50% of the people in the household already had it. Nowadays, you go into a Delta, uh, in, uh, where there's a Delta index case, we call it, virtually everybody who's unvaccinated gets infected. It's, it's much more infectious. And let's talk about uh, vaccines. There also is, I, I've heard a lot of people, there's a belief out there that if you're vaccinated, you can't catch COVID. That is not true, correct? Could you explain what be, being vaccinated with COVID versus not being vaccinated with COVID means, whether it's the Delta variant or not? So the vaccination is incredibly, incredibly effective at preventing serious illness, hospitalizations, and death. Uh, it, greater than 95% protection against those. What we really care about the most, of course, is hospitalizations and deaths. And, in, and all the vaccines so far are really, really effective uh, to, uh, to preventing those two important things. There are people, unfortunately, uh, not everybody, and that's true for any vaccine, no vaccine is 100% has 100% ability to prevent all infections. So it's about, uh, I think the latest data is about 80% effective in preventing infections, which means that a certain subset of the population can still get infected after vaccination. But the most important thing about it is it prevents them almost certainly from ending up in the hospital or dying. There are these breakthrough infections that happen with any vaccine, um, even including the measles and polio vaccines. But the, uh, but the risk is really, really low for hospitalization um, and, and death in particular. And that's what we most, most care about. But people that, um, you know, we're also finding out that these breakthrough infections, all rare, all, albeit rare, people that are uh, ending up in the hospital despite having been vaccinated from, with, with, with COVID, they're rare, very, very rare. When they happen, uh, the latest data I saw is about 44% of those people who have these breakthrough hospitalizations 
are people with immune deficiencies, people with cancer, transplant patients. So their bodies are, are not able to mount a, a strong enough immune response, presumably, to the vaccine. So we have to be protecting those people, too. That's why we have to get everybody vaccinated to protect even the, not just the unvaccinated, but the vaccinated who are, who are even vulnerable. That's a great segue into my next question, which is, there are people out there, that, why do I have to wear a mask if I'm vaccinated? Um, so can you explain what the masking does? Because obviously, sadly, this has become political. Uh, again, there are people that, you know, just are picking and choosing what they believe. Uh, but just medically and scientifically, why do people have to mask up even if they've been vaccinated? Can we be carriers or because of what you spoke about, we could still uh, get sick or we could, if we get sick, uh, hurt someone who's not vaccinated, especially if they're not wearing a mask? I, I'm I wear a mask because, and I'm fully vaccinated, because I don't want to unnecessarily, un unknowingly spread the infection, including this, this, particularly this Delta infection, to other people. Um, and that includes the people that I see on the street that may be unvaccinated, as well as people that might have cancer or um, immunodeficiency. So, uh, look, I, you know, I heard somebody say the other day, it's not like we're being asked to storm the beach at Normandy. We're being asked to wear a mask and get a shot for goodness sake. So I'm, I'm, I think I'm, I'm gonna wear a mask in those situations, particularly indoors, primarily to protect others. Even though my risk of going to the hospital if I get sick is really, really, really low, I still don't wanna take the risk that I might spread it to others. Yeah, I, I posted something today. Somebody said, you're willing to die for your country, but you're not willing to put a, a, a needle in your arm for me, for your fellow neighbor, you know, something to that effect, um, to, to your point. Um, let's talk about these variants. And um, again, not a medical professional. Um, we have the Delta variant, and we've talked about how that seems to, like you said, hold on, you know, tighter once in the system. I've heard about a, a variant coming out of Peru called Lambda, and I've also read that the vaccines are not as effective uh, against that uh, variant. So two questions here. One, is that true? And two, will this virus continue to mutate until we get to that? I know people hate that phrase, herd immunity nowadays, but until we get to a point where enough people are vaccinated that the virus has nobody to jump to as a host. Well, um, as far as the this Lambda variant, I haven't seen all the data myself, Leslie. Um, and I think we'll have to wait and see whether, in fact, that it, it turns out that this is less, uh, you know, that the vaccine response is less protective. Uh, I, I'm not uh, convinced yet that we've seen data uh, to support that yet, but we'll wait and see. Listen, if we don't stop this virus from replicating, we're going to run out of Greek letters to call these things. I mean, this, this virus is going to mutate. It mutates every time it makes a copy of itself and replicates. So every time somebody new gets infection, infected, this virus can mutate itself and eventually it could mutate to escape our immune response. And we're trying our best. That's one of the reasons we have to think about mandates now is we can't wait for, we shouldn't wait for that to happen. Uh, we really need to get a lot more people vaccinated. So this virus has no one else to infect, as you said, and if it has no one else to infect, it won't mutate further. Are, are you surprised as a medical professional, uh, knowing not just in your profession, Oh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, I want you to answer this one, though, doctor. Um, are you surprised about the hesitancy with this vaccine when, you know, I, I think almost everybody, most people in this country, not everybody, there's never 100 percent 
uh, have been vaccinated for smallpox and polio and German measles and tuberculosis and hepatitis, then the list goes on. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to hear your response uh, to that as a medical professional. I'm Leslie Marshall, doc- back with Dr. Bob Bollinger, uh, the Rajan Kamla Gupta Professor of Infectious Diseases at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, right after this. Tuesday and welcome back. I'm Leslie Marshall. Our guest is Dr. Bob Bollinger, Raj and Kamla Gupta, Professor of Infectious Diseases at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, holding joint appointments in international health at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and in community public health at the JH School of Nursing. He's also founding director of the CCGHE, the Center for Clinical Global Health Education. Please check out their website, main.ccghe.net. On Facebook, their page is facebook.com forward slash CCGHE. Dr. Bollinger, thank you for holding. Welcome back. Um, I asked you before the break as a healthcare provider, um, as a physician, uh, an infectious disease physician, are you surprised about the vaccine hesitancy, knowing the amount of vaccines most of us have had uh, given to us since uh, childhood in the United States? So no, Leslie, I'm not surprised at all. I think it's perfectly reasonable for people to question um, you know this because um, what's you're absolutely right. We've all had vaccines. Most of us have had vaccines since childhood. Um, the difference now, of course, is that uh, we developed we, we set a world record. We we developed a vaccine from uh, literally within 11 months. Now, what people need to understand is that the the reason we were able to do that number one is because we invested we governments, including the United States, invested billions of dollars in accelerating. Not the, uh, we're not skipping steps of safety. We we went through all the steps that we typically do to develop a vaccine: the preclinical, the phase one, phase two, phase three safety studies. The phase three studies uh, were 30 to 45,000 people, just like they would in any other vaccine uh, trial um, development. Uh, but we had to accelerate because we were having so many people dying. It was it was amount of money that we put into this uh, that helped uh, accelerate. Not the uh, not skipping steps, but to accelerate and facilitate the process so we could get there quickly. The second thing is that um, this epidemic that was happening so fast, so many people were getting infected. When we started the trials, we got the answer that the vaccine was working pretty quickly because so many people who didn't get the vaccine, who got placebo, got infected. In other situations, we would do these steps very sequentially over 10 or 20 years, and the investments would take time because you know, pharmaceutical companies and governments were not incentivized. It's not an epidemic or pandemic situation. They would just, they would just take their time and, uh, and and invest over many many years. This time we didn't have that luxury. We had to save lives fast. The other thing is that this, t- for example, the mRNA mRNA technology has been around for 10 years. It's not new. We didn't need it. Uh, we had other vaccines. Uh, we had this new technology. People have been working on for 10 years. But there wasn't a big pressure to develop products for it because until the till this pandemic, and thank goodness we did. Thank goodness we've been working on this for 10 years. So I want people to understand all the same steps to evaluate safety were done. In fact, we've now got over 300 million people in the United States have gotten a, you know at least a, a 300 million injections. Almost 4 billion people in the world have gotten an injection of one of these vaccines. We have a tremendous amount of safety and efficacy data on these vaccines and they're extremely safe. 
uh, and very, very effective. And so people should be reassured by that. But I don't have, I don't uh, blame people for being cautious about it and concerned because it was fast and was an unprecedented, um, you know, situation. Uh, there are some, and not being political here, but sadly this has become somewhat political, this whole vaccine versus non-vaccine. Uh, there are some states, uh, Florida, Texas, Tennessee, are just three off the top of my head. They are Republican-led, but that aside, uh, when states preemptively prohibit vaccine requirements, at least in some settings, how difficult is that for those in the healthcare uh, profession, for healthcare workers in those states? Well, I'm not entirely clear about uh, your question, Leslie. You're talking about preventing access to COVID vaccines or other vaccines? Um, they're uh, prohibiting vaccine requirements, like they're against a mandate, for example, in their state. Well, listen, you know, um, you know, I think uh, it's heartbreaking for me to see that uh, that people who, sh- who shouldn't be dying are dying of this infection. This is a preventable disease with infections prevented um, hospitalization and death prevented with vaccination. And it's heartbreaking to see so many unvaccinated people continue to die. When when there are restrictions on the ability to uh, provide not only access, but mandate vaccines, what that does is disproportionately affect those communities at greatest risk for death and hospitalization from COVID. And who are those communities? They're mm-hmm. black and brown communities in the United States. They're first responders. They are essential workers, people that are the highest risk are the ones that are going to suffer the most from restrictions on mandates because people who aren't in those categories have greater access to the vaccine. They don't care about the mandates. Um, they're, they're, you know, they're not uh, the ones that are suffering at the same rate as these other communities. So we've really got to find ways to get vaccination to everyone, but particularly communities at greatest risk for hospitalization and death. And, uh, and I think you know, restricting mandates actually exacerbates that, that uh, you know, discre- discrepancy, that uh, lack of access, I think. It disproportionately affects those communities. How do you think we get more shots in arms for people that are hesitant? Well, I think, uh, you know, nobody's going to force anybody to get a shot. These mandates are not, not going to have the government walking up to you in the street and sticking a needle in your arm. The mandates are designed to allow businesses and schools to open safely, to allow companies to open safely, to allow people to gather safely. It's really designed so if if you don't want to get a vaccine, fine, but you're not. But why should you put others at risk? Why should why should you put people who are willing to get vaccinated at risk? Um, and and so I think that um, mandates are certainly going to be increasingly important if people aren't gonna voluntarily uh, address this. But on the other hand, I think we, we still need to provide additional education. We need to do a better job in, in explaining why the vaccines are at work, explaining and, uh, and dealing with all the misinformation um, that's out there about this, telling the truth, providing people the facts, not judging people so much, but yeah. uh, giving them information. Uh, with, with, you know, one of my neighbors is an ER doc and somebody asked him, how long do you think we're going to be wearing masks? And he said, uh, last year, he said, oh, I think, uh, you know, well into, if not throughout 2022. What would you say? What's your answer to that, me asking you today? I know you don't have a crystal ball. Well, I think it uh, depends on the variants. I mean, if if we don't get uh, if the Lambda variant or the next uh, version is doesn't escape the immunization, you know, the vaccine, 
Um, then I think, you know, early part of 2022, if, if everybody gets vaccinated, uh, you know, we could be in a very different place. But if we if we don't uh, turn the corner in the next, I'd say, three to six months, get in, particularly we've got to find ways to get children safely vaccinated um, because they're disproportionately getting hammered right now, uh, particularly in the southern states. Um, so we've got to protect our kids as well. And um, if we're out, if we're not able to do that, we could be seeing masking and distancing requirements for a long time with new variants being introduced and, and the requirement for boosters and trying to chase this this situation, uh, this could be a really uh, a longer term challenge. Will COVID be a part of our lives forever? I say that because some people are like the flu is most many of us. get. I shouldn't say most many of us get a flu shot every year uh, as the flu uh, mutates, uh, you know, the, or, you know, grows a resistance to our vaccines. They come up with new vaccines. Is that the future? Is COVID yet another shot in the arm that you foresee us having going forward? Oh, I, I wouldn't wouldn't surprise me if that's true. I mean, you know, this is the seventh coronavirus in humans in, in human history. Four of them cause common colds, and we know they've been around with humans for at least a thousand years. Wow. So I don't think this uh, this is this virus is going to go anywhere. I think what we're going to need to do is get everybody vaccinated so we keep it at a low level, and so that we don't have any more hospitalizations and deaths. From a medical perspective, can you explain to people watching and listening what it does to the healthcare system or to healthcare professionals like yourself when uh, there's when you're inundated with COVID cases in the ER and the ICU? It's it's always stressful, um, and it's been incredibly stressful, particularly uh, for the nursing staffs, I would say, uh, and the ICU staffs. But what's different now is it's 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 always heartbreaking when you see. Uh, uh, people dying of any of any disease, but when you see people dying of a preventable disease right now, when you see people who are unvaccinated on ventilators, and and you know at their last breath before they're intubating, you know having regrets that they weren't vaccinated. When you see children and adolescents getting sick uh, because their parents wouldn't get vaccinated, it's just heartbreaking. And I don't think you need to be a healthcare worker to to feel that heartbreak. But when you see it every day in the hospital, it becomes a very very real. Uh, pain and uh, and it's t- and it's tough. There's a lot of a lot of uh, you know PTSD in healthcare workers, and, and it's going to continue if we don't get this under control. Why did you say in the next few months? Yeah, uh, ha- we have to get it under control in the next few months. Why, why I, that time? Because I think eventually, if we don't, we're going to be continuing to wear masks and chasing new variants for the next year. I'm going to give you the, uh, uh, we have 30 seconds, so I'm not going to give you anything. I'm, go- I'm going to give you the the rest of the day off. No, <laughs> I know you never have a day off, doctor. Doctor, thank you for taking the time to be with us. Uh, I, I trust you implicitly. Sadly, I have people in my family who refuse to get vaccinated, and I, I, I've talked to them blue in the face. I, I even, it, it, we've even had some uh, friction between friends or my, you know, kids' friends whose mothers uh, and I disagree on this. Uh, so thank, thank you very much for the education, not only to me and my staff, but to our viewers and our listeners. Thank you very much, doctor. Thank you. Dr. Bob Bollinger, Raj and Kamala Gupta, Professor of Infectious Diseases at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Like I said, he's the founding director of the Center for Clinical Global Health Education. That's the CECGHE. And they're doing a lot of COVID-related work in the U.S. and beyond our borders. Check out their website, main.ccghe.net. And go to Facebook and follow them there, facebook.com forward slash CCGHE. I'm Leslie Marshall. Thank you to Mark Romaldi, our executive producer. We have more with you on this program every day. Be sure to continue to join us.